From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, July the 19th, 2018. This is episode 63, Satisfying the Punisher. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am Jason Snell, and I am joined by two wonderful guests. As always, Florence Ion is back. She's the co-host of the Material Podcast here on Relay FM, as well as All About Android on the Twit Network. And uh, we used to work together. Hi, Flo. Hi, Jason. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. I also want to plug uh, my new show with Megan Maroney, Know How. All about IoT. That's fair, because Megan uh, <laughs> plugged that, too, when she was here. Well, we're, we're having a lot of fun together. You get some iPhone, you get some Android, you just kind of put it in a pot together and talk about Internet of Things stuff. It's yeah, great. It's, a, it's a lot of echoes and assistance. Yeah, it's good. I, I hear you. You just can't turn around. You can't say <laughs> a, a syllable without it triggering some device somewhere. It, it, that's my nope. life, too. Dan Frakes, uh, somebody else I also used to work with, and he's a senior editor at The Wirecutter, and he's back. Hello. Hello. I feel like you used to work with everyone, Jason. Uh, uh, it's not entirely true. Point. They had to pass, mostly they had to pass their IDG at some point. But yes, many That's people true. did. We did our time. Yeah, many people did. One, one of these days we'll get Brian Chen on from the New York Times and I'll be like, I remember when you reviewed printers. Anyway, uh, Stephen Hackett is here as well. Hello, Stephen Hackett. I was never an IDG employee. No. I went straight for the new media jobs. Yeah. Wow. No. <laughs> yes, you did. You know, when I came out of college, there weren't any new media jobs and that, so I worked yeah. in a magazine. Hey, I came out of college too and I didn't go into new media. Yeah. I went straight into magazines. Yeah, see? It's, uh, there wasn't any money in new media back then. Now there's no money <laughs> in any media, so, you know, it happens. Anyway, let's get down to it. We do have topics to talk about, about tech and related things. So we should probably start with, uh, and it was a, kind of a slow week it felt like, and so I'd like to thank the European Union for finding $5 billion uh, to find Google $5 billion for breaking antitrust law. Uh, just because it gives us something to talk about. Um, Five billion for Google. Does it sting? Maybe a little. Maybe not that much. Um, the three different charges at the core of the EU uh, uh, finding Google. One, uh, Google violates antitrust law by requiring phone manufacturers to pre-install the Google search app and the Chrome browser as a condition for licensing Google Play. Two, Google pays large manufacturers and mobile network operators to exclusively pre-install the Google search app on their devices. And three, Google has prevented manufacturers wishing to pre-install Google apps from selling even a single smart mobile device running an alternate version of Android that's not approved by Google. Google was told to end all three practices. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, didn't take that lying down. He said uh, that, that Google and Android have expanded the choice of phones available around the world. There are more than 24,000 devices at every price point for more than 1,300 different brands. So, you know, yay us, basically, is the answer there. Um, Flo, you, you follow this stuff really closely. I think this is really interesting because it's almost like the EU is treating Google like it is itself, like or Android like it's the smartphone market, and 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 saying rather than saying, you know, yeah, iOS is out there, but you guys are the big guys. It, it seemed like a lot of this is targeted at 
providing maybe more choice inside Android, which reminded me of the 90s and the Microsoft stuff, where it's sort of like Google has made a lot of steps lately to get Android to be more unified, less fragmented, and standardized on a bunch of Google services. And this seems to be like going directly against that and saying, not so fast. If people want to do different stuff and unbundle stuff, uh, that's okay. You should let them do that. What do you think? What's your reaction to this um, this slap on the wrist, $5 billion slap on the wrist of Google by the EU? What do you think? Well, so... Andy and Notko and I recorded material last night, and we were just sort of breaking this down between the two of us. And I sort of came to the conclusion that I think, um, I, I think this whole like Google, I mean, I got an email this morning about uh about this about the fact that you know Sundar Pichai wrote this blog post about how Android has choice but when you look at the core of it all like every device even if there is an additional browser on the device like in the case of the Galaxy S9 even if there's additional quote unquote bloatware on the device like in the case of the Huawei phones it's still Google at the core and the heart of it like there's still that search engine and it's it's sort of requested, it's really suggested that this is what you use. And when you're buying an Android phone, you're buying that Google branding. And I think that innovation has been... So some of the talk around this has been centered around how... Uh, Apparently, this is like stifling innovation. This is why, you know, we're not like moving leaps and bounds in the smartphone business. Um, but I do feel like in the terms of software diversity and just like the or the diversity of platforms, it's really binary right now. It's just Android and iOS. Um, and I think Android kind of has a competitive edge that we're all forgetting. And that's that Google's at the core, again, at the is the core of all of these things. And for them to really be competitive and to be on their own, they can't have this sort of, uh, can't have this holding them up if that if that makes sense. It's because it's not a truly independent piece of software. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. I'm still kind of waffling a little on it, but I will say that I, I'm just a little exhausted by the press tour of like, ah, oh, Android, we were trying to bring choice. I mean, but yeah. you were still pushing Google services and people to use Google and the Google Assistant, which is the big thing that Google's really going for right now with AI. I have to say, I was not impressed with Sundar Pichai's response because it felt very much like a diversion from the subject at hand. Like, he's saying, well, look, all these great things that Android has done. It's like, okay, I will grant you all of those things. But what the EU seems to be saying, and I I, I can get why Google doesn't like this, but what the EU seems to be saying is, okay, we took you at your word that this is sort of a, a platform that was open and that people could like not use your tech and just use pieces of it and that you're using your market power to sort of push people together. I also see Google side, which is I think what you just said, um, very much like, yeah, but to make Android better, <laughs> we needed to do these things in order to get the Google services. It's not just the Google services at the core. It's also to make the whole thing hang together better because these were a lot of a lot of this was a addressing issues with Android being um, not as good because they, they, it was kind of less integrated and, and, 
And so I, I see both sides of it. And again, I hate to keep bringing up Microsoft in the 90s, but these are a lot of the same arguments, which is the, the, uh, the regulators said Internet Explorer is you're trying to use your monopoly and operating systems to, to take over the web. And Microsoft was like, how do you make an operating system without a web browser? And we need to integrate it for it to be better. And both were kind of true. <laughs> and And it makes me wonder if uh, this is just sort of a natural thing that happens with platform owners is, you know, the, the direction of making your platform better, the easiest, the thing you can control is the stuff that you can control yourself. And so you build that to be better, but you're also blocking other people when you do that and other options. Dan Frakes, did you get any uh, Microsoft vibes here? What are you thinking about this? Yeah, I think like the two of you, I'm still kind of wishy-washy on, the, on this whole thing, trying to figure out where I come down on it. I mean, it is true that this is sort of 90s-ish and that, you know, a company's using a monopoly position in one area, in this case, you know, an operating system to, to, to further their position in another, which in, for, in this particular case is search. But I think Google rightly points out that it's a lot easier to delete a stock app and replace it with third party alternative in Android than it was under Windows in the nineties. I don't know if you ever tried to, t- to do that in, in 1995 on a Windows machine, but, um, and, and the other big difference, of course, is that, you know, back when Microsoft was under, criticism for this internet explorer started out as basically like a nothing browser that nobody used until microsoft forced it on everyone and then it became you know huge whereas google search was basically the search engine most people use anyway and arguably the best one for most people and and chrome is already the most popular web browser in the world even on other platforms so you know it's it's a little different argument to me and i don't feel like it's as egregious in that respect um I think the uh, the other thing that's interesting to me is is like you mentioned, you know, Google's been under criticism for years about how fragmented Android is and how long it takes to get security updates and all this, and so now they're finally saying, okay, great, so we've now got a, a, a can- canonical version of Android, and we want people to use that, and that's going to help us get you know software updates faster. It's going to make sure apps work with everything, and then the EU says, wait, we don't want that. So that that feels a little counterproductive for actual, you know, for, for consumers to me, because one of the best thing to come, come around with Android in the last like, few years is like, you know, Android one and the, and the programs to actually get stuff updated safely, frequently, instead of having a phone that you bought last year, that's no longer getting software updates. Um, I guess the flip side of that is that it's a little hypocritical of Google to say that and then every, and then allow every carrier to put their own crap on phones mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. make them like, unusable in a lot of ways. So it's kind of hard to say, well, we want everybody to be the same unless they're a big carrier that pays us lots of money. Yeah. One of the scenarios I keep thinking of here is that, and one of the weird things about the, um, the antitrust regime and the, uh, that runs at the EU is uh, there was a really great thread by Steven Sanofsky, who used to work at Microsoft, uh, on on Twitter yesterday about this, where he said one of the challenges is that the, the way the EU sanctions work is they don't come to you and say, here's what you'll do. They come to you and say, here's what's wrong. You fix it. We'll tell you if we're satisfied, which is amazing. Like, what a what a game theory kind of situation is that where you have to come up with your own punishment until you satisfy the punisher. Um, wacky. But so um, sadistic by, even by the way, satisfying the punisher uh, now on Netflix. Anyway, um, so so I do wonder if it, it ends up being one of these things where Google crafts some sort of a punishment for itself, which is 
is basically like, well, we're going to create a version of Android that's going to have, you know, that that it does not rely on our services and is <laughs> and is really dumb and you can have it and then nobody wants it. And then they move on. I mean, I, I could totally see that sort of thing happening where the remedy for this is them um, creating a, a, an offering that nobody really wants. Because the fact is, I think Android is better because it's more integrated now than it used to be. I remember using early Android phones and how it was kind of a mess. And also it means that in certain markets, you'd end up with these weird Android forks that were not very good. Um, at the same time, it does allow companies that want to walk away a little bit from google to do so so you like i i that i think that's google's risk here is that is the eu makes them tr- uh more like a public utility where it's like well you can do your fancy android but you also need to maintain like android generic for everybody and let everybody use it the other thing that i think is a big difference here is that back in the 90s microsoft's goal was to sell more copies of windows right so just you had to actually buy a copy of Windows for them to benefit or be using it in some way that generated more Windows sales. Whereas Google's goal is to get as many people, as much data as possible and as many people using Google search and Google services as as possible rather than selling the actual OS. So I, I feel like that the cases are very different in that respect too, in that in how Microsoft and Google are going to approach fixing quote unquote it. Well, that makes it sound like the Google one is, I don't know. I feel like the Google one sounds like it's more important in a sense. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I say that a little with a little trepidation because I don't want to like fully get into it. But <laughs> yeah. A $5 billion yeah. fine, by the way, is not exactly, um, I mean, does, does that even sting Google? No. Yeah. I, it's I, pocket I, yeah it, it, isn't it like, um, I think they said it was like 10% of their full earnings or something of the sort. I could have sworn I heard or read something yeah. on, along those lines, but that's a, that's a penny in the fountain. <laughs> Ooh, a penny in go. the fountain. <laughs> yeah. We, we've got more, uh, Google stuff to talk about and, uh, because Google, yeah, in the news this week for sure. Um, but I want to take a quick break, tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of download is brought to you in part by away a team of thinkers seekers designers and that's why they've made smart premium suitcases so your luggage doesn't cost more than your plane ticket and what do you need most while you're traveling more battery when you buy an away suitcase you can charge all your devices while you travel both sizes of their carry-on feature usb ports with a battery large enough to charge your phone five times from a single charge go to awaytravel.com slash download now and browse away suitcases featuring premium german polycarbonate in lots of pretty colors these days which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance and still lightweight 10 colors more than 10 colors in fact in five sizes two carry-on sizes plus a medium a large and yes a kid's carry-on too and they cut out the middleman so you can get first class luggage at coach prices away suitcases have a patent pending compression system which is great if you're an overpacker like me and four 360 degree spinner wheels you will never go back once you use a suitcase with spinner wheels uh away's carry-ons are compliant with all major u.s airlines and still maximize the amount you can pack and they have tsa combination locks built in there's a removable washable laundry bag so you can keep your dirties away from your cleans when you're traveling i just used that on my last trip uh and indeed i liked the away carry-on so much that we bought a second one for my wife uh we use them all the time and in fact on our trip to europe that was one of the nice things is wheeling up to the gate being able to sit there and charge our uh, phones before the flight and then as we uh, rolled down the jetway i just popped the battery out and stuck it in my backpack so i could use it while we were 
at our seats, which was very nice. Away believes in the quality of their products. They have a lifetime guarantee. If anything breaks on your Away suitcase, they will fix it or they will replace it for life. They also have a 100-day trial with a no-questions-asked return policy with free shipping on any order within the lower 48 states of the U.S. So there's really no reason not to give it a try. Travel smarter with a suitcase that charges your phone. And to find out more about Away, go to awaytravel.com slash download. And if you use the code DOWNLOAD at checkout, you'll get $20 off any of their suitcases. That's awaytravel.com slash download and the code DOWNLOAD for $20 off. Thank you, Away, for uh, giving me a suitcase that I use all the time and for supporting this show. All right. More Google. More Google. We're not done with Google, folks. Um, Google. So so Nest. Let's talk about Nest. Mm-hmm. Yes. Google, Google bought uh, Nest for $3.2 billion back in 2014. Um, its founder was Tony Fidel, who helped build the iPod originally at Apple. Um, he left. Um, Nest has been sort of uh, in the other bets category. And then recently it was sort of announced that they were going to be kind of moving back into kind of the direct Google orbit. This week, what we heard is that uh, Marwan Fawaz, who is the CEO of, Next, of Nest installed by Google, is leaving the Nest group, although he's staying with Google. CNET reported that employees were complaining about his leadership. Um, Nest is now being entirely kind of subsumed into Google's home and living room product team, even though the, the brand will carry on. Um, the Nest story is fascinating because Nest was such an interesting up-and-coming co- uh, company with their smart thermostat, and they got bought by Google, and everybody was like, oh, well, look at this. This could really supercharge them. And instead, they kind of got quiet, <laughs> and it seems like their product pace slowed down. And we, we have a link in the show notes to the story on CNET about the fact that um, that uh, people are complaining about him and that there's this, there are so many stories that make this link between him leaving and people complaining about him, which I find fascinating because it seems to me that Google installed him specifically to do what he did. And although the employees didn't like it, like, you know, he was an operations guy, not a product champion. He was there to get things in order. Um, I, uh, Nest employees anonymously complaining to CNET that the focus turned away from uh, uh, shipping products when they were ready to shipping products soon, even if they had some some flaws. Um, and I look at that through the lens of of Nest, like not shipping products for a very long time, and thinking he was probably brought in to kind of kick things over in there and get them uh, in shape. So I could see why why maybe people were, were a bit out of shape by him being there because he was doing the job that Google asked him to do. Anyway, that m- was my perspective for the outside. I was fascinated that this entire article was about Nest employees complaining about this guy. But anyway, he's gone, but there'll be a new boss in charge and they're getting subsumed back into, into Google proper. Uh, there was a time, Flo, there was a time when I would have said Nest getting entirely swallowed by Google was a bad thing. But after seeing how what nest has done over the last four years i think it's all for the best what do you think so i've actually been reviewing the nest products that have been coming out over the last year the smart the new smart home stuff so like the security system uh the door locks that whole thing my house is basically outfitted into this one giant like nest google ecosystem Mm -hmm. 
And um, I've revolved a lot of my work around that because I've just really been studying this home ecosystem that Google is building. And so this makes complete and total sense. What you said about this, you know, the CEO being installed to sort of kick things up, things were kicked up because what happened this last year is we had some new product categories introduced through Nest. So it's not just security cameras and thermostats. It's, you know, it's a whole lineup of things in addition to the ability, in addition to being able to use some of the new products as kind of like a smart home hub. So you can use it like with the works with Nest affiliation. So the whole idea is to get Google centered as like the smart home portal. And so this makes complete and total sense. And I feel like whoever concocted this plan uh, knew exactly what they were doing because I think it's working. I mean, it feels like this has been coming from a, from a, their management point of view for a while. But even as a user of Nest products, um, th- th- he's clearly gotten a lot of things out the door in the past year after having like however many years of nothing. But as a user... It's been disappointing to me that those products don't really work well together. So like, for example, I have a Nest Protect smoke alarms, which have motion and temperature sensors. Why don't those act as remote sensors for the Nest thermostat? Why do I have to go buy separate sensors? I mean, these are the kind of things that like, if the teams were working together, they'd be like, hey, we have this stuff. Let's make it work together. Um, and that's from talking to people inside Nest. That's a frustration there inside too. Um, so to me, uh, like Flo said, moving Nest into the home devices unit, it's a no-brainer. I mean, all the Nest products are obviously home devices, but um, more important, if I think if Google is going to better compete in this market, it's going to be because the company makes great things that are easy to use and make each other better. And what I mean here is that, you know, as somebody who has a lot of smart home gear, um, there's definitely a network effect when the things work together. The more I can easily get them to interact and do things with them, the better chance I want more of them and more of other things that work with them. So it's, I mean, like a light switch that I can toggle from off on and off from my phone or with a voice command is cool, but a light switch that turns on when somebody walks by my front door or that can use other devices in the home to detect when I'm not home and then make it look like I'm home. Like those are the kind of things that make the smart home stuff really cool. And I feel like with the Google stuff, you couldn't do any of that because they were walled off gardens for the thermostat and for the, you know, for the smoke detector and for the security camera and um, getting them all in one department under one person with some vision, I feel like is really going to make those devices better. Um, so, I mean, like now you're going to have Google Home and Chromecast and Wi-Fi and thermostats and smoke detectors. Everything is going to be in one place with one team um, in charge of it. So I, I think that can only be a good thing for them. I think it's interesting, too, that Google is saying that the brand is going to carry on. You know, I've got, like you guys, a lot of Nest stuff in my house. And I wonder uh, if if that uh, brand is sort of keeping some some types of consumers comfortable with it, that if it was labeled a Google camera or a Google smoke alarm, that yes. some people may be less uh, familiar with it. There's a there's a mm-hmm. flip side of that question is like, is Google confusing people by using a different brand? But I still think the Nest brand itself has a lot of value in it. And I think mm-hmm. it makes sense that they're keeping it. It's like Nokia. <laughs> I was going to say it's like Beats a little bit, right? Where like, oh, or Beats, yes. You know, Apple makes headphones and that's fine, but Beats has a brand and has cachet and it means something and you should not throw it away just because you bought them out and i think nest is the same way i i bought the first generation nest and i like it a lot 
And um, what part of my frustration with the company is that is that um, that second generation Nest took a long time to come, and it didn't really do anything other than get a little bit smaller. And even a third generation hardware wasn't really particularly new, and the software didn't have any major updates. There are little things here and there, but it felt like they had their big product, and then and then there was this big question mark of like, what what else are you doing? And they the, you know the Nest Protect had some issues when it came out. They seem to have changed and, and are are shipping more stuff now. But I want to echo Dan's frustration about this stuff working together. It seems like everything is getting a little bit better, and that's the killer is when they start to be able to interact. For the longest time, Nest's inability... I wrote a, a comparative for the wire cutter, actually, about the uh, the first generation, basically, of uh, smart uh, thermostats. And, you know, the competition was came out after nest but it was, it was all like so much better and that th- that temperature sensor thing is the one that always gets me like so many people need to have the thermostat react to a temperature in a place where the thermostat isn't so you get a remote temperature sensor and that works great and for years nest was like yeah you can't do that whereas the competitors shipped with little sensors that you could just stick somewhere in a room and then that was it and they just worked so um there were a lot of issues with nest i guess and 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 to echo flow's point since google is is into the home hardware business now they're they're committed to it having nest be a part of of that spectrum of products deeply integrated with the rest of them. It just makes sense. So, I mean, I think they got where they needed to be. It's sort of a shame that it took this long and that I, I, I still feel like there was a lot of wasted time and, and effort. I just want to mention very quickly that even like the new Nest stuff that came out was not 100% ready <laughs> when, when it arrived to me. And that goes so, to that CNET story, right? Yeah. Where, where they're saying, well, you know, we shipped it before it was ready. And I could see how the guy, you know, that's always a, the question. Do you ship it just to get it out there or do you do you wait? I think they had to ship it to get it out there because this year there's just been a maelstrom of smart home things. And I can see that every company is just like, we need to just get our face out there. Otherwise, you know, we're going to miss this wave. Um, also, I just want to note for... Everyone out there that Nest products uh, cost a lot of money, and that's mm-hmm. also, and mm-hmm. also you have to pay a uh, annual fee fees. for yeah. for a lot of uh, what you are using in the home. And while it is all very convenient and works nicely together and is like very nicely designed, there are a lot more cheaper options out there. Yeah, it's also true. <laughs> I think there's a legacy of the Tony Fidel era where um, I will say I think the thermostat is still the best looking. Oh, smart all this thermostat. stuff looks great. I, I do love it. It all looks beautiful. Yeah, there's value to that. Like I, I by all rights, I should probably be using like an Ecobee thermostat or something like that because it does HomeKit, which is going to work better with my Apple stuff. But I don't, I don't like the Ecobee yeah. how it looks. I love how the Nest yeah. thermostat yeah. looks. So the white one is awesome. I gotta say, that's how they get us. <laughs> yeah, I sacrificed the the regular Nest features to get the white Nest because it looked better. Nice. In our wall. <laughs> well, you know, it is home. Like that. That, that, the fact is, looks for something that's going to be on the wall of your house all the time. Yep. It mm-hmm. it matters. It matters. Yep. Like the Ecobee, as good a product as that is, it's like a black plastic round wreck <laughs> yes. with a little screen yeah. in it that's super reflective. It's kind of hard Looks to like see. Looks like a toy. And I, I, you know, yeah, I just didn't like it. <laughs> so back to the brushed metal and the little, I have the brushed metal one, but it's very nice. The second gen, I think, is what I've got. 
Um, okay, there's another uh, another uh, Google story that sort of slid in this morning that I wanted to at least mention, which is we talk about Android and what Google's doing with Android. Um, and we've heard a little bit about Project Fuchsia, which uh, Google's been working on. Bloomberg did a big story about it uh, today that talks in more detail about how Project Fuchsia is an operating system project at Google that may be intended to ultimately replace Android. It's meant to scale from little embedded devices and smart home devices all the way up to phones and even laptops. It's being worked on by a growing team, including a bunch of senior engineers at Google, and even people like Matthias Duarte uh, are involved at least part of the time. A new interface, better security, possibly better privacy or not. Bloomberg's report says that there's a lot of push and pull going on between the uh, engineers who want uh, better privacy protection and the uh, ad people at Google who are like, no, 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 we need to be able to follow those people around and sell them ads. Um, more frequent updates and and a whole bunch of other kind of modern stuff that maybe uh, existing Android has struggled with. Um, it's really interesting. It probably is a years long project even now to get something. They, they said in the Bloomberg story that they thought maybe they'd ship a smart home device with it. Speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of Google smart home devices in the next two or three years, um, flow, uh, you know, you do so much talking about and thinking about Android. What do you think about this, that, that Google may be kind of working on its replacement in the background? You know what? I'm not going to be dubious about it. Um, I'm going to say that it's totally, it's totally possible. I just, uh, while you were explaining, I was sort of thinking about the fact that everything Google's been doing for the last couple of years has all been about scaling. Even, uh, you mentioned Matthias Suarte, and I'm thinking about the fact that the new material theming is all about scaling. It's all about being able to work cross-platform, across you know, different, uh, from the browser to your phone. So, I wouldn't be surprised if they did the same for, you know, like one operating system to rule them all. And it makes, I mean, look at all the product categories that they've got, you know, coming out and how they sort of, how everything sort of seamlessly works together. I get it. It's, you know what? Just fix, just come out with the tablet interface. Like that's <laughs> kind of what I'm waiting for right now. <laughs> I've got everything else except the tablet interface. It, it I was just going to say, yeah, Android tablets are kind of a hot mess. And if this helps them, then <laughs> I would like, I just need a tablet to play a good, you know, just to have a couple games <laughs> that I need for. Um, and something scalable would be great. It's, it's interesting too. When you think about Google having a solution that scales to all these different types of devices, because that's kind of what Apple's done with iOS, you know, TVOS and watchOS and mm-hmm. even sort of, I think it's SoundOS on the HomePod. They are at their core iOS. They don't have the springboard and the apps on top, at least not the same way that iOS does, but they're using that core OS everywhere. And you can see how it's allowed them to spin up variants for new hardware products. I think they really benefited from that. I think Google would too. Yep. Well, it's interesting to me because the Chromebook is a, is a very good OS for what it does. Um, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm an Apple person, but I, I have a Chromebook and for what it does, I love it. And, uh, you know, Android has come a long way into where for a lot of normal people, it's a comparable OS to iOS. And yet you've got this big void in the middle of tablets where there's just nothing really good. And so to me, um, anything, I mean, I mean, Google really is not competing in the tablet space right now. It's really Apple and, and, and Microsoft apart from basically an Android fire tablet, which is just for watching Netflix, you know? So I feel like that's a huge hole in Google's portfolio right now. And if anything they can do to, to make it so that 
you know, people who actually want to buy an Android tablet is, is a good thing. I just wanted to add that the Chromebook, the Pixel, uh, the Pixel Book is my daily driver these days. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff with uh, with Chromebooks for for like Dan says, like you know you can find all sorts of areas where they don't work. But I'm for, not podcasting for, on it for what they are meant for. <laughs> they right. it, it's it does it, what you need, and um, I think um, it, obviously Google and Apple are thinking many moves ahead mm-hmm. <laughs> and i i'm encouraged by this because you know the like like ios the android project is a decade plus old it's more than a decade old and uh, both of the, those companies have learned a lot about uh not only uh how mobile operating systems what the needs are of users and where where they think it's going um and and i could totally see right like the the value of saying we need to be planning for what our next decade or two is and maybe fuchsia turns into you know the new android <laughs> essentially and they replace it it's android os 10 <laughs> for apple users that's basically what it is uh apple's doing its same thing where it's kind of realigning the mac and ios and trying to figure out how they kind of come together as a platform in the future so i'm i'm encouraged by this because i i feel like google has been limited by a lot of the design choices made by android early on to to get better privacy and security um you know security's been an issue for android and they're doing everything they can but if you if you engineer it more with more fundamental security if you engineer it with updates uh, as a more uh, over the air as a more fundamental part of the operating system um uh, I, I, you know, I do wonder about how big a mess it will be if they try to do an OS transition, right? Because you've got all the carriers, all the phone makers, so many Android devices out there, so many Chrome OS devices out there that um, realistically, even if they say in three years, four years, we've got something ready for phones and tablets and laptops, how long is it going to take for that transition to happen? Maybe a decade? <laughs> or more importantly, how how far back is it going to happen for like which people? Oh, I mean, uh, I assume know. none. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I'm thinking like a year, a year, two max on like Google, on pixels and, and Android one devices. But you know, apart from that, if you've got an old device, you're basically stuck. Yeah. Yeah. That's the big challenge I see for that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's true. And, and who knows, given the EU stuff we talked about earlier, it's entirely possible. Um, I know Google has made a lot of effort to take, uh, to make it hard to just make an open source, android device without a huge engineering effort but if google said we're we're creating a new thing and it's going to be fuchsia and here it is um i imagine somebody would at least try to walk away with android and that would be interesting and also messy but i i don't i think don't think it would work (laughs) i think it would fail but i think it would be a distraction um i don't know i i think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going to happen in the uh computer and mobile phone world in the next five years because it does feel like apple and google are both and microsoft's doing interesting things too right they're all kind of like positioning for the next round right now it's very interesting. We're ready. We're ready for a quote unquote disruption. Yeah, we're ready. It's it's well, we're we're especially ready because we get to talk about it. 
right yep. about it. And we like that a lot. Um, <laughs> let's take a break. I want to tell you about another sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile Software. Text Expander multiplies your team's productivity and makes up-to-date shared knowledge available instantly around your team. Using Text Expander, everybody on your team can get access to common responses like, uh, let's see, so they're accessible and searchable with abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts. You can have them written and edited by your best writers, so your best writers can write the text and then the people on your team who are not as strong at that they don't have to worry because they are sending out the words crafted by your word crafters it's available on multiple platforms mac os ios windows and web it's updated immediately everywhere when modified so if you have a change in policy you can update a snippet one place it goes to everybody and immediately they may not even know the policy has changed but they type a couple of letters and boop out comes the new text that's been vetted if you're on a team it will change your working life and leave you more time to do what you do best for larger teams text expander supports single sign-on and grouping accounts, including identity providers like Okta, OneLogin, and G Suite, reducing the time it takes to onboard larger numbers of users. Textexpander.com slash podcast is where you go to find out more about how to type a couple of letters here and a whole bunch of text that's been approved by other people on your team and everybody's on the same page comes out the other side. You can learn more, again, textexpander.com slash podcast. And thank you to Textexpander and the good people at Smile for their support of download okay uh time for the story you might have missed something that may have flown under your radar but is worth mentioning on a podcast which this is a podcast we can mention it here it's jupiter jupiter steven pay attention it's space stuff wake up um jupiter is the biggest planet in our solar system by a lot a lot lot like it's really big like if aliens were cruising by they'd be like oh look there's a star and a planet and then they keep going right and it would be jupiter Um, and depending on when you were in school you also learned it has lots of moons many many moons it it literally you could chart like however many moons they told you it was that would be when you were in school because they keep discovering more moons this week this very week that number was increased to 79 79 moons of jupiter a team of scientists announced they had found 12 just a dozen could they not throw in a 13th baker's dozen jovian moon uh it looks shaped like a donut maybe uh using a four meter telescope in chile these moons are very tiny keep in mind you know jupiter's largest moon ganymede is bigger than the planet mercury like there are big moons around jupiter that galileo saw in his telescope but these are teeny ones and they're weird one of them is going the wrong way down a one-way street <laughs> which means it probably is the survivor of many collisions over time and will probably make more collisions with some of jupiter's other moons which you would think would mean there would at some point be fewer moons on jupiter but probably the way it works is that there'll be more because they'll smash into each other and there will be more moons what i'm saying is jupiter is weird and it just got weirder 79 moons uh steven are you excited about uh jovian moons I'm excited, but you didn't even talk about my favorite part of the story. Uh, tell me. Is that the discovery was mostly accidental. <laughs> so there's a group from Carnegie Institution for Science, and they're looking, they were looking for, there's this idea that there's a planet beyond Pluto. That's a topic for another time, but another podcast, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of, yeah, a lot of things saying there's a, there's another planet out there and they were looking for that, but in moving the telescope, they got images of Jupiter and they decided to take some pictures while they were there. And someone was looking through them like, oh, look at this. And so they did some, you know, some more capturing and, and confirmed the discovery. But really just because they were moving the telescope around I'm like, oh, look, extra moons. 
Yeah, they're looking for stuff out beyond Pluto, and instead they find Jupiter moons. Because Jupiter's big. I'm just saying, it's big. There's lots of moons there. You just look accidentally, and you'll find some moons. You, you know how you know it's big, and this is my favorite part of the article, is that the outer ring of moon orbits is 15.5 million miles from the planet, and it's they're still orbiting the planet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jupiter's so funny because it's also got like the the inner zone of moons orbits one direction and the outer zone orbits the opposite direction, which is why this weird moon probably was a larger moon that kind of got off course and got smashed into little pieces. Because why is it going the wrong direction? Um, It's British. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's driving on the left side. Sure. That's probably what's happening. Okay. Topic number three, July 17th was World Emoji Day picked. Uh, why? Why is July 17th the World Emoji Day? I, Stephen, why? Help me out here. Oh, boy. Computer history. Yes. And moons. This I'm setting you great, up. Oh, yeah. This is Stephen's segment right download. here. So, if you're a Mac user, you know the application Calendar. It used to be known as iCal, built-in calendaring system to the Mac. Apple, Steve Jobs, introduced that on July 17th, 2002. So the icon inherited the July 17th date. Uh, now Macs show the correct date in the dock. It used to not be the case. It would always say July 17th, regardless of the day, which is very confusing. Um but uh, it's still there. It's still in the icon in the applications folder. So it moved from a keynote to the iCal icon and then to the calendar emoji. So it's a, it's a date with a lot of history. And uh, somebody, it was probably Jeremy Burge at Emojipedia, mm-hmm. <laughs> our friend, uh, started World Emoji Day in 2014 as a way to celebrate these little images that slowly are replacing all our words. In the future, everything will be communicated in emoji. Um, for the last couple of years, Apple has actually gotten into this. I think Jeremy is so proud. Uh, they show off the artwork. It's like this. Uh, it's like the spring fashions or something like that, right? Where they're like, first... <laughs> The Unicode Consortium uh, Emoji Subcommittee, which Jeremy Burge is on, uh, they approve, and then the consortium approves, like sort of like what the next set of emoji standards are. But they don't do the art, and so then it's up to the platform owners to do the art. Uh, and so Apple has decided that July 17th is a great day for them to show off the art that they're going to integrate in the next version of iOS. Although it's probably like 12.1. Sometimes they don't all get in right away, but they'll get in in the fall and they make a big thing of it. Uh, 2018 will bring 70 different emoji to iOS and macOS. The total number is clo- closer to 150 if you add in like sort of gender variations and skin tones. There's options for red hair, curly hair, gray hair, and emoji heads that are bald. Of course, Google, Microsoft, uh, Twitter, everybody will be working on their artistic renditions of these emoji, um, including some new animals, the rhino, kangaroo, lobster, uh, parrot, and peacock, uh, several food items available as well. Well, I said lobster. Oh, sorry to lobster fans out there. Um, generally, uh, Apple <laughs> includes new emoji and a point update to iOS and macOS after a major release. Because it's a way to get, you talk about software updates, like people update the software to get the new emoji. It's kind of brilliant because nobody wants that question mark in uh, their text message and be like, what? What what are they what are they saying? There's a serious fear of missing out there. So uh, I got to start with flow and say flow uh, blobs or circles for emoji preference for you. 
circles, actually. I'm over the blobs. You're over the blobs? Over the gumdrop yes. people? I, yes. I applaud you. I never like the blobs. I know people love the blobs. I hate the blobs. The Google blobs. I'm glad that Google has, like, gone away from the blob. Do you mind if I plug the fact that, uh, well, you mentioned that people update iOS for the emoji. Well, Android, uh, Oreo has emoji compat, which you can read about at emojipedia.org, <laughs> which <Okay>. I wrote. <laughs> Very Just nice. wanted to plug that. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Do you, so how do you use uh, emojis, uh, Flo? Are you a big emoji user, a limited emoji user, and a, a no no emoji? Uh, what, what, where are you? I use it as part of my online vernacular. Um, I The only time I don't... I use uh, emoticons, so the traditional smiley faces in emails, uh, you know, with clients and with PR, because, you know, I like to I like to put a little... I like to put smiley faces around in there. But when I'm talking to friends, I do use a lot of emoji. I don't have time to always construct a full sentence and give you, you know, yeah. <laughs> all the emotion. How, yeah. How can I how can I build in emotion to a sentence when I can just have an icon that completely, uh, completely conveys it? That's, that's exactly. And my yeah, like the beating heart. Yeah. Dan, are you a uh, emoji user? Oh, yeah. I mean, as a as a company that works remotely, we do like 90 percent of our conversations in Slack. So there's a lot of emoji going on. In fact, we have a lot of custom emoji in the wire cutter Slack room. But um but yeah, I use it all the time. And in fact, that's one of the main reasons I use, uh, Google's Gboard keyboard for, uh, for iOS is that it makes finding and using emoji yeah. a lot more, a lot easier. Uh, and I use Rocket on my, um, a little app on my, uh, on my Mac that lets you just type a colon and then start typing the name of an emoji and it puts it in for you. So, uh, yeah, I love, love a good emoji circle. Yeah, I I just uh, responded to you in emoji, but nobody can see it because there are no emoji on podcasts. Stephen, are you have you embraced the uh, the world of emoji? I don't use it publicly very much, but you know, in texting with friends, uh, definitely in Slack, um, sort of like the the weird cousin to emoji, the tap back and iMessage, like a thumbs up or something. Uh, to do something quick, it's it's a nice shorthand, but uh, you know, I, I'm not my blog has not been overrun with them like some people's blogs, Casey. Ah, Casey Liss. Yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be uh, publicly. I thought that was a little bit weird, but I get you. Like, I, I don't do a lot of emoji in my writing on on my site, right. but but in every other medium, I'm I'm all there. Okay, I'm gonna go around and ask people what their most commonly used emoji are. What are the ones that you use the most? Flow. What are your favorite emoji? Uh, I. Love to use the hugging emoji, but I just kind of use that. It's just, it's jazz hands to me. And that's what it looks like on Android. Yeah. Um, and I also use, okay, I was excited about the beating heart, but I call it the Wi Fi heart, which is me radiating love. <laughs> so, like, whenever my friends, we just check in with each other throughout the day. And so I send them a little quote unquote Wi Fi heart where I'm just radiating love. Nice. <laughs> Dan? What are your favorites? By far, thumbs up is my most used one, mm. um, especially in Slack. It's just kind of the quick way to say, got it, you know, 10-4. Um, also, a lot of fingers crossed. I guess there's a lot of hope in my, oh. hope in my life. <laughs> oh, Dan. <laughs> That's good. That's good. It's good to have hope. Steven, what are your go-to emoji? I'm looking on my iOS keyboard. So uh, the orange heart is right at the top. It's Johnny uh, I's favorite thumbs heart. Up. Yeah. And uh, the lion emoji. I use him a good bit. Yeah. Well, you, you resemble him. Yes. That's so it's, uh, that's been my shorthand for like a agreement or yes, I, I hear you. So thumbs up and the wink emoji are my top two for sure. Whoa. Um, but I got to say roll, rolling eyes 
it's, there's things on the internet. Yeah. The rolling eyes emoji is making a, a, a strong case. Um, I felt like the red heart was too forward, so I, I blue heart people. I mm-hmm, send, send mm-hmm. them the blue heart. I, I think the red heart's like, I'm just not going to go there. Send the blue heart. I like that. Upside down smiley face is a is a good one face That's a good one face palm and shrugging guy also like as with the rolling eyes guy have come into the fore and on many of the slacks that i'm on because you can do custom emoji my very favorite emoji is skeletor but uh, unfortunately hooded skeleton not yet approved by the emoji subcommittee so the rest of you just have to suffer without skeletor but the, you know skeletor emoji saves the day I do a lot of shrug, but but my shrugs are the text emoticons. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks to text expander. In Slack, you can just type Slack. Here's a tip. Slack tip. Type slash shrug in Slack and it does the shruggy guy. It's I recommend it. Well, there you go. Emoji. We've talked about emoji Uh, a little bit more before we go. But I want to take another break. Tell you about our last sponsor, which is Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to start a podcast ever. You can record a high-quality podcast. You can host unlimited episodes. You can distribute it everywhere. And uh, you can do that with one click. It's completely free, too. Anchor's app has some of the most innovative features around. You can get voice messages from your listeners. So your follow-up in your show can actually be the voices of the people who listen to your show. Uh, You can transcribe segments and turn them into videos. You can share. You can add audio transitions, background tracks. And they feature detailed analytics so you can see how many people are checking out your show. Plus, Anchor just ruled out the ability to record with up to seven friends so you can have group podcasts. The audio quality is great. You get high bit rate, stereo sound. Basically, the episodes are going to sound really great and for everybody who uses the ipad anchors ipad app is great it has easy editing tools multitasking support and the ability to drag audio in from other apps in fact i believe somebody on this podcast uses anchor for a podcast isn't that right Stephen hackett (laughs) it is right so i host subnet which is like a three tech stories of the day and we do it on Anchor so we can easily get it on the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. We we're talking about that group earlier. So you can have Subnet as part of your like, hey, tell me the news rundown. Or you can ask for it specifically. And they make all that super easy where you don't have, we don't have to build it ourselves. So I've been doing that for, uh, I think today's episode 119 or 120. So I've been doing it for a little while now. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. So go to anchor.fm slash download and find out more about what Anchor can do for your new podcast. And if you sign up there, your show could be featured by us in a future ad. It's true. That's anchor.fm slash download. Go there now and start your podcasting journey today. Thank you to Anchor for supporting this show and helping aspiring podcasters get started easily with podcasting. All right. Time for the fuzzy puppy update. Listener Lucas wrote in with a link. It's uh, not quite. It's a virtual puppy. It's a digital puppy. Uh, a funny YouTube video that is a speed run of a video game called Pet the Pup at the Party. If you don't know, this is a video game that was released, I think, last summer. It puts you in a party full of people in an apartment that is procedurally generated. So there are many, 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 impossibly many rooms. And in the distance, you hear a dog barking. And your goal is to avoid human interaction and find the dog so you can pet it instead of talking to people. It's adorable. There are like 52 different dogs, although as is revealed in the playthrough video, it's actually 51 different dogs and a cat 
you can find uh the speed run video is really cute we'll put a link to it in the show notes you can find that in your podcast app or uh, relay.fm slash download slash 63 and thank you to listener lucas i got a kick out of the video and the idea of that game is great just avoid there's all these people at this party in all these different rooms and you just got to get away from them and find that dog very nice all right. find that dog find the dog pet the pup at the party <laughs> uh well and that brings us to the end of this download flow where can people find you and the stuff you do uh all over the internet but for now just go to florencelion.com oh look that's so straightforward that's excellent i yeah <laughs> it's all there and, and dan frakes what about you where can people find your stuff uh, dan frakes on twitter and just anything at wirecutter anything at wirecutter Dot com dot com it's thewirecutter.com, but wirecutter.com works now, which is very yes. exciting. Uh, Stephen Hackett, thank you. We talked about space. We talked about emoji. We, uh, you know, we, we we did a lot of good stuff. We did, we've done some good work here today, Jason. <laughs> right, now that we're congratulating ourselves. But yeah. episode 63, I thought it went okay. Anyway, you know what, though? Episode 64 will be next week. We'll just, uh, just keep on rolling. And uh, until then, I have been your host, Jason Snell. We will keep watching those headlines so you don't have to. See you next week, everybody. 